Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, a founder that has done it multiple times. You know, we're going to be talking about some of the good stuff on building, scaling, then also how he went from media to food. We're going to be talking about some of the good stuff behind Attic, thinking about food as medicine and many other stuff that I think you're all going to find very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Brad McNamara. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So originally born and raised in Boston and also in the suburbs. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Uh, growing up in the Boston area was fantastic. I, like I said, born and raised here in Boston. I did have the privilege of moving around and going to a number of schools that shaped a lot of my childhood, but uh, ultimately have tried to leave the area and it just keeps pulling me back in. So Boston is now my home. Amazing. Now, now let's talk about that, you know, too. I mean, how was, how was it like being there? I know that very early on you were into business. So what was that drive that you got about turning ideas and bringing them to life? Um, I mean, I think it's pretty simple for me. I mean, as a young, uh, young person, I think it was that first time that I ever put something together and then made a buck doing it whether that was a service or, you know, my first, my first gig, ride my bike to the train station and uh, shining shoes. So I think from the moment that I realized that I could be my own boss and I could come up with something and I could make a dollar doing it just felt good. And I want to keep doing that. So then in your case, you know, you literally got started there in high school, you know, you started with a printing, you know, type of gig and, and then you haven't stopped all the way until today. I guess saying you went to your undergrad there in North, Northeastern and you did communication studies, you know, out of all things. So I guess, you know, how would you say that that shaped a little bit more your perspective, you know, towards perhaps, you know, ideas and thinking through problems and solutions? What would you say? Uh, I mean, studying communications at Northeastern was interesting the drive to study communications, I don't think was very pointed other than at that point in my life, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I liked the idea of radio and media. And so I said, I want to be on the radio. I want to be on a big show. How can I do that? And I think studying communications actually at that time was really interesting because it was right at the moment that media was making the full transition from analog to digital. So I essentially got to be in studio and in classrooms with physical tape and all of the latest sort of pro tools, technology, software, and other pieces that were coming online. So it was a really uh, interesting time to be there, to see the old blend with the new and get and jump off from there. Now, media, out of all things, you know, obviously you've uh, ended up going into a completely different path, but, but media, why were you so excited about the media environment? And you were talking about being on a big show and things like that. I guess, what got you so excited about it? And, and more importantly, what do you think that you've learned from that experience too about storytelling and being able to apply storytelling in business? Yeah, I mean, the draw to media, I guess, as a young, as a young person uh, is pretty universal. It seems flashy. It seems exciting. 
And then you get into the work of being on a, you know, a top market morning show where you're in the studio at 3.30 a.m. and your workday ends at one and then you go to class. I think the, the biggest learning about media storytelling and how it's applied to business is in a lot of ways, there's no one singular way to do it. Everyone tries to put a formula to it, but at the end of the day, it's an authentic personality story and connection that always resonates. And so everybody I worked with in radio who was any level of successful always had those elements. They really loved what they were doing. They were authentic in the way they delivered the story and the way they told it. They didn't try to manufacture some sort of radio voice or some you know, fake backstory. They you know, basically told the stories they found funny, told the jokes in the way they thought they were funny, and, and brought their personality to bear. So at what point do you start to rethink your career path and, and all of a sudden you realize that maybe, you know, media is not your calling, perhaps food is your calling? <laughs> um, well, if you go back to the moment that I was in terrestrial radio, I, you know, I had a great mentor, was one of the top morning hosts in history in, in Matt Siegel at Kiss 108 in Boston, you know, historic, iconic show. And terrestrial radio was kind of going away. Uh, satellite radio was coming online. So it's, the, the writing was kind of on the wall. And truth be told, looking forward to getting up at three in the morning and grinding away for hours every day didn't seem like that much fun anymore. It wasn't as glamorous and flashy as it is when you, you know, you're 19, 20 years old. And so I started to look around. Actually, I, I left the broadcast side of radio and went into more of the marketing side at a different radio group with a few friends of mine. Uh, and we had started a small marketing company out of that space, working with CPG brands, beer, liquor, nightlife in the, in the region and had a phenomenal run. You know, again, can't think of anything better. You're a young, a young person in, in the city running a, a nightlife style business with two of your best friends. The business grows like crazy. I think we had six full-time people and 300 contractors across New England, you know, operating. And pretty quickly, uh, after three or four years of running that business, I started to have a bit of a, a epiphany moment where I realized, again, this isn't what I want to be doing when I'm 40, 50, 60 years old. It's fun right now, but it doesn't really make me feel full, if you will. And in a lot of ways, that's where my transition to food came in, where I had gotten uh, pretty pretty into endurance racing, triathlon specifically. And a lot of the a lot of the people I trained with, they're very hardcore, and they looked at food as fuel. I always joke that I liked beer and pizza a little too much to go to their to their level, but I could appreciate it. And that's when I really started to get into where was food grown, how did it get to me, why does that matter. And I started to pull the thread of the food system and realized it was dramatically broken in a number of different ways. And right around that time is when I said, you know what, I need to change my life. I need to transition to something that I could work in for 30 or 40 years and never look back and never question again, what am I doing? Why am I here? And for me, that was the food system. And you know, that's, that was really the time that I decided to change course. So then let's talk about changing course. What happened next? Uh, well, 
I was experimenting playing around in my apartment with hydroponic systems, LED lights, sensors, actuators, all, all these sort, sorts of fun gadgets and, and toys, if you will, realizing that I could grow food in so many different configurations in so many different spaces because I'm you know, sharing an apartment with five or six other guys, not a lot of space, no backyard. And that's when I realized there was something to be had there in the the emerging of the technology to growing food with LED lights, controlled environment, agriculture, what was happening with cloud compute, sensors, all of these things were going in the right direction for this to be feasible in the next 10 or 12 years was my assumption. And so I actually ended up going back to school. So I went to Clark University in Central Mass and got an MBA in sustainability and a master's in environmental science and kind of tuned my education around this idea of food systems, and controlled environment agriculture. Now, in that case, then, you know, like, how does that lead you to end up, you know, like bringing to life, you know, the idea of fried farms? You know, like, what was what was the sequence of events that needed to happen, you know, for you to really be so clear and, and, and be like, okay, I'm going to go at it with this one? It was a journey to get to that clarity. So the first thing I did when I started to realize I wanted to build with this emerging technology was just call anybody I knew in the food system who dealt with food, dealt with the business of food, and fortunately was able to tap into a pretty good network of food distributors who were at the epicenter of moving lots of perishable food. And it really started with, could we develop systems that would allow you to grow food in the cities closer to where people are? And the idea initially was, could we apply some of this emerging technology to rooftop greenhouse? And that very quickly fell short. And as I built more and more small-scale systems, realizing the problem was uniformity and was uniform hardware to apply recipes and software at scale. And so really the epiphany was doing custom builds on rooftops across the country was going to be too slow and too small to really have an impact on the food system. Could we take these emerging elements of hardware technology, put them into one singular product, and then apply software to make it most efficient and allow that knowledge to be shared. Using that premise, then basically went to a parking lot, got a used shipping container and started to build. So at what point do you realize, I think we are into something here? Uh, I think it was two moments. It was the first time we built a full-scale 40-foot ship and container farm, seeded it, and all of the plants didn't die. They actually grew to the point where we could eat them. And 1A was probably when I had one of the distributors who moves you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, uh, of leafy greens, amongst other food, out to the farm. And he asked, huh, can I buy this? And I thought, okay, I've turned a corner here. So I guess for the people that are listening, you know, to to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Freight Farms? How were you guys making money? Uh, so Freight Farms, we sell uh, hardware, software, and refillables. So we sell uh, a turnkey farm solution. So it is, uh, you know, a 40-foot shipping container, uh, essentially shell that can be shipped, dropped anywhere in the world. You know, they're in all 50 states, I think 40 countries at this point. It's all connected via what we call farmhand software. So that's the operating system that connects our farmers to us and to each other. 
to share recipes, best practices, workflows. And then there's a built-in store, essentially, for nutrients, for seeds, for all the inputs that go into your farm. So how is that the process, too, of um, when it comes to scale, you know, from going to a parking lot to, you know, to where it actually got, you know, like, what does scaling look like? What are some of the typical issues and and the ones that you actually encounter in this case? Uh, I'll say it was a great learning experience because we had all of the scaling issues that come with a standard hardware product, a consumer hardware product as well as a software company, kind of all rolled into one. I think the best lesson we learned was to continually build at whatever for whatever scale we were at with eyes towards the future and never stop selling. That was a big piece for us. You know, there was a lot of moments where the, the choice was, do we invest heavily in manufacturing and efficiency at this moment in time to try and drive you know immediate gross margin on the hardware product but means we won't be able to sell as many units in the short term and it was always a it was always a balance to to pull those two together and keep growing so i guess as you guys were growing you know obviously you needed some money uh and you raised the capital here so how much capital did you guys raise for the company today um, so Freight Farms, we've raised right around $50 million to date. And what was that journey like of, of raising money for something so unique like this? Uh, I would say it was exceptionally difficult, um, would be the best way to characterize it. I mean, if you think about it, we were raising first institutional money back in 2013 for Freight Farms. It was at a time when ag tech wasn't a thing. There weren't ag tech focused funds. I mean, we were even... We would even joke around the office, what should we call what we're doing? So we just would mash words together and come up with ag tech. But I think the 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 difficulty at the time actually made for a better business. And we were able to raise capital from great investors, you know, some great angels and seed funds early, you know, raised our Series A with Spark Capital, you know, a great, you know, firm in the in the tech space and have been able to secure great investors. I think the the emerging element of the segment lent itself to what I consider great venture investors who are seeking, you know, the risk profile of if this works, it could really be a game changer. And so, you know, it was harder to find those investors. We certainly weren't going to catch a a wave of investors who are, you know, had FOMO of missing this thing. Uh, But when we did secure investors, they saw our vision for a global connected food system and said, wow, when that works, that's going to be important and that's going to be big. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, 
to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And then what was that like of educating them? Because, I mean, obviously, when you guys got started here in 2012, Actec was not as, you know, uh, hyped as maybe it is today. And, 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 and maybe the amount of money or the educated investors that you have today, you didn't have that at that point. So what was that process, too, of educating them, getting them to understand things and getting them to be comfortable with making an investment? I mean, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. It was an education process. And part of it was engaging the right investor at the right time so that they were interested enough to want to learn. And then we weren't going to close a round. We weren't going to secure an investor in one, two, or three meetings. That became very clear, very evident. And so just had to run a slightly different process of you know, engage early, build relationship over a long period of time and be ready to have some, after a while, what felt like frustrating conversations for us in terms of having to sit down with a, an investor, maybe their whole team, a number of partners and explain to them, yes, you can grow plants indoors. You have to remember 2012, 2013 timeframe, there was still a technical debate as to whether you could grow plants using LED lights, which is now just common knowledge. We were, we were sitting in boardrooms with, uh, with partners explaining to them the science behind, yes, you can, in fact, grow edible plants using LED lights. So for you back in 2020, that's when you started to wonder, you know, maybe there's something else, you know, that, mm -hmm. uh, that I could be doing. You know, here at that point, you had already built a rocket ship. You had raised, you know, tons of money. And... People would tell you, why would you, why would you turn page and not keep going? You know, what, what happened, you know, that, that was that trigger for you to, to really think, Hey, maybe it's time to, 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 to go on to a new chapter as a founder in building something from nothing. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes back to that decision I had made in 2009, 2010, where I said, you know, I need to change course. Where am I going to focus my life? basically till I'm done working or I die, whichever comes first. And it was around the food system. And building freight farms gave me a really unique perspective into where food is grown, how business is developed around food, where it goes and how it gets to the end consumer, the end eater. And more and more, I realized ag tech, controlled environment agriculture is a, an essential part of the solution you know, for future-proofing our food system you know, getting food where it needs to be. You know, but there was a massive food system that was just broken in so many different ways. And a big piece of that for me was distribution. And so, you know, I was fortunate, I'll say, to be able to put a great team around me at Freight Farms. So I had the option, you know, in 2020 to say, okay, you know, 
this is doing exactly what I had hoped it had done. You know, kind of outkicked my coverage and 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 gone beyond you know some of my expectations from back in 2010 when we started to create the idea. And I started to look at the rest of the food system. And I went back to some of those earliest kind of believers in the distribution space. So as I said earlier, one of the validating moments for freight forms was a, you know, a hard scrabble distributor that moves hundreds of millions of dollars with perishable food kind of said to me, hmm, this is important. Can I buy one of these? And I went back to those exact same people and just started to ask a lot of questions and match that to the successes and failures I'd seen in food over the previous 10 years. And the realization I came to was that food businesses getting to scale, specifically those around grocery, perishables, you know, were not had not failed from a perspective of create a great brand, figure out customer acquisition and get customers through the door. Where things fell apart was as they reached scale, there's a certain physical element of the rubber needs to meet the road because you need to get fresh, high quality, high quality perishable foods to people with economics that makes sense. And that's where that's the brick wall that I saw a lot of companies run into. You marry that with a lot of the sort of social issues that were emerging, you know, food insecurity, food access, you know, the emerging movement around food as medicine of replacing, you know, chemical laden, calorie dense processed food with fresh food towards a health. And I realized, okay, that problem is only going to be exacerbated. And I just became more and more enthralled. So long story short, I started to spend a lot of time at these distributors who were sitting on hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of state-of-the-art infrastructure. These warehouses with multiple temperature zones with the ability to source, warehouse, select, pick, pack, highly perishable, fresh product at a rate and a volume that I had never seen before. And they had massive underutilized capacity. So I'm spending time at these warehouses and I realize if you show up at 11 a.m., the place is like a ghost town because they buzz like a beehive from 3 a.m. to 10 a.m. because their industry works those hours, similar to the radio hours. But after that, there's a few people standing around and you've got all this inventory. You've got all this warehousing. You've got all these trucks. You've got all this automation and it's just not being used. So I started to ask the question, if I built a technology layer that created access to all of this great infrastructure to run fulfillment, was that, would that be possible? And so dove headlong, recruited my co-founder, a woman who was a powerhouse. She had uh, run a food distributor for about 17 years from the time it was a $15 million operation to right around 200 million when she joined me. And we kind of went off to the races of, can we be the fulfillment, be the backbone and the back end for this movement of fresh perishable food specific in food as medicine? So, so, so double click on food being medicine. You know, obviously there's more consciousness around this now, right? Than it was before. So you're kind of like riding this wave of consciousness, you know, around this, but, but walk us, you know, through that, you know, through that thinking, through, through food being medicine, what are you seeing and why is this so important? Uh, food is medicine. It's a relatively new term, but the, the conventional wisdom goes back as long as long as we can all remember, you know, the the old the saying I grew up with of you are what you eat kind of thing is very simple. And it's 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 kind of it's kind of lost its meaning. 
as the food system has been more industrialized. But food as medicine is really just the culmination of the healthcare system finally realizing that 50% of Americans are now being treated for some sort of food related chronic disease. And it's costing the economy, the healthcare system, everyone money and productivity to the tune of trillions of dollars. And so that realization happened a few years back. And finally, after enough research, validating the fact that, okay, when you change people's diet who have diabetes, hypertension, some of these other chronic diseases, when you simply alter their diet towards something more healthy, something more whole, something fresh and perishable on a consistent basis, the, the cost to keep them alive, to give them care, to improve their quality of life goes down dramatically. And so as soon as the research started to come online and get validated multiple times, it was only a matter of time before everybody was going get to on, get on board with, okay, you, you truly are what you eat. So, so in this business too, you guys have raised some money. Uh, and uh, I want to ask you now, because it was the second time around, you know, on, on really getting outside capital. What did you do differently when it came to raising the money uh, from the people that you did? And, and how did you go about making it an effective process rather than throwing a spaghetti on the wall, as I'm sure that you did, you know, initially? Um, yeah, I mean, I think one fact being a, being a, a multi-time founder, I had a dramatically different, more well-developed network uh, of capital allocators to bounce ideas off of and to bring in early. So I think the biggest difference is that I had the confidence this time around to talk to investors who invest at the earliest stages and explain to them what I was thinking, what I was building, essentially building the relationship over time. And, you know, not being, I would say, you know, shy or even timid about the fact that I was building something new. I wasn't sure exactly what it was yet, but I was really excited about the opportunity. So that might've been the biggest difference uh, this time around. And I think the other side of it is just being clear on my ethos of the market I was building for and how I was going to build it. So the, the biggest difference is when I was building freight farms, I wasn't very clear about how I saw the end game, how I saw the end market. You know, not not talking about exit strategy at the earliest, yes, or a pre-seed stage, but where do I see the world evolving based on this concept? And then how do I plan to build the technology that will make that reality true? And so this time around, I was able to be just much, much more explicit of how I saw the world evolving and the technology I believe needed to be built to facilitate that reality. So... I guess imagine now, you know, when we're talking about people and, and investors and, and building the business, I want to talk about vision because that's a big one. So if I was to give you the opportunity of going to sleep tonight, Brad, and mm -hmm. you had the snooze of a lifetime and you wake up in a world where the vision of Morrissey Market being fully realized, what does that world look like? The realization of the vision for me is for Morrissey Market to be the back end of perishable food commerce. So yes, food is medicine, fulfilling produce prescription, fulfilling medically tailored groceries, but also ushering in an entire new generation 
of food commerce entrepreneurs. You know, an entire fresh food platform where, you know, the same way Shopify and Fulfilled by Amazon was able to do this for your durable goods, a a platform and backend that enables that sort of creativity around fresh, healthy whole foods. So now we're obviously talking about the future here, but I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. Imagine mm -hmm. if I was to put you into a time machine and I brought you back, you know, maybe to 2012, to that moment where you were thinking about maybe like doing something of your own and, and really making it happen. And you had the opportunity of um, having a chat with that younger Brad and being able to give that younger Brad one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why? You know what you know now. I think if I was able to sit down, Brad, circa 2012, I would first and foremost sit myself down, say, have a seat, stop moving around, take a breath. And a bit of the advice would be to internalize, internalize the best advice you're about to get and then happily dispel or ignore the others. And that would be all the things that you can't, couldn't have possibly experienced. So a lot of that had to do with people and trying to do it all. So one thing, you know, I heard at nauseum when I was, you know, a young, a young founder is, you know, it's all about the people. It's all about the people. And I think I gave it lip service that I was hearing that and internalizing. And it took a lot, it, it took a few too much, too much real world scar tissue for me to internalize it and realize, you know, the people you're building with are what's going to make the difference between, you know, being able to get a product out, which I, I'll say is relatively straightforward, being able to like iterate to product market fit, which is a process, but you can do it. But building a great company is going to come down to the people. And the other piece that I would say to myself circa 2012 is do it all, but not today. So pick the things to do today that are most important and then push everything else out of the way. So when I was a young founder, it's almost like you're playing a game. And when you first get to that next level of the game, everything feels so fast. You're trying to do everything you learned all at once and let the game slow down a little bit and then make the, make the next best move you can that day. Just keep doing that with great people and, you know, even if you fail, you're going to feel like a success. I love it. So, Brad, for the people that are super inspired, I would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Uh, best way? I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. So, Brad McNamara, um, probably a bearded guy with a Morrissey Market hat on is, is kind of my standard profile pick. Reach out. Uh, always happy to, to chat with anybody. I mean, at this point, you know, really looking at and engaging with those that are fighting the good fight in food as medicine. So those that are connecting patients, doctors, dietitians, and are looking to get them, you know, the highest quality, fresh fruit, produce, medically tailored groceries in an economic way. Amazing. Well, hey, Brad, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, 
you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.